This is Melissa Ford-Lockin. Rosalie Petrowski. Susan, Seraph, and Jess. Editors for the Washington Square Review. Washington Square On Air showcases the poetry and fiction of the latest edition of LCC's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, read by the poets, authors, and editors themselves. Expect the unexpected as our contributors express experience and fantasy with humor, imagination, poetic license, irony, and passion. If you love language at its most original, please join us in our audio town square to celebrate a community of writers spanning from around the world to Lansing. This is Melissa Ford Luckin, editor for the Washington Square Review. Today, I'm here with Matt A. Hansen, writer, journalist, and editor. We're happy to have one of his pieces in our upcoming issue. The title of the piece is Mrs. Grammar. Thanks for joining us today, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. It's fantastic. Very delighted. Tell us a little bit about your piece. How did you come to write it? So this piece is really just based on my upbringing in small town America. I'm from a New England town called Mattapoisett. And growing up in that town was sort of like a laboratory experiment in uh, utopian living, I think, as a child, which has been so different than uh, my life uh, in a number of countries and cities throughout the world. First city I lived in was Cairo, Egypt, and I currently live in Istanbul, Turkey. And um, looking back on my childhood, I'm mid-30s now, and uh, from trying to imagine <laughs> just the stark contrast between being a, a seven-year-old in, in a classroom uh, versus the, the concrete uh, struggles of adult life. So I really wanted to sort of paint a, a picture of that contrast. Um, and the, the, the main character, uh, Mrs. Grammer, who, whose name is based on a teacher I had uh, that rhymed with that name. And, um, you know, as a, as, a, as a child, you see these school teachers and you see them sort of as single professional individuals and it kind of creates this imaginary uh, portrait of a person um, sort of disconnected from the rest of their lives. And uh, in some ways, I think childhood is sort of, uh, can be a disconnection uh, from, from the rest of life, unfortunately, perhaps unless you're, uh, you enjoy, you know, more more healthy relationship to, to childlike impulses, if as a creative person, for example, these kinds of things. So, um, so yeah, I just wanted to paint a kind of a stark, tragic portrait of a, of a school teacher who's facing eviction and also uh, perhaps uh, resignation from work. And uh, this this contrasts with the the students in the class who sort of enjoy this uh, wonderful experimentation and they fail and they are talented and they get to express themselves and they get to be in the center of attention and the teacher brings that out in them and sort of while while napping she disappears and um, 
and then there are these scenes where she's in in her home and i i tried to imagine what that could be like sort of this afternoon in a small town feeling kind of disconnected and uh, facing a kind of uh, professional and personal uh, desolation and so it's got this kind of almost like uh, <clears throat> I think of this uh, lecture by uh, David Foster Wallace this is water about sort of like you know what it's like to push uh, a grocery cart through a parking lot and sort of realize that such moments that um, you know life is like sort of painful and difficult and, and boring at times and um, but <clears throat> uh, the the wonder I think of of writing is, is uh, you know perhaps also a, a painter or, or uh, someone drawing would feel it is in, in that in that slight specificity um, of each moment we can sort of appreciate just the, the raw details of uh, that sort of appear to us either in, in, in combinations of memory and imagination. So, yeah, so I think, you know, short stories are, are this, I, I think Juno Diaz said, they're sort of like this close uh, approximation of perfection in literary form uh, as opposed to novel writing, for example, which is can be more loose. And uh, so I tried to really just do sort of a contrast, like a basic contrast, childhood, adulthood, you know, the experimentation in, 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 in education, how precious that is, uh, the learning process, and then where you get to fail, and failing is so much part of learning, and, uh, and then that up against uh, the fact that you know, so many people are facing these sort of hard concrete tragedies you know and and facing them alone i think which is on top of that so <clears throat> i mean school being a lovely place in which we enjoy communal uh life so i th i tried to create different uh contrasts within the story and sort of create a setting in which uh for for readers we can perhaps uh connect with these like slight moments of discomfort along the way. I think especially the commute is sort of uh, this, <laughs> this uh, a special place. For example, this story starts where uh, she's listening to a, a podcast in which there's uh, an author describing the education process as a kind of theater or literature and sort of exaggerating <laughs> with this kind of like highbrow mentality in a sense. Um, so I think, you know, these standards, they're, they're you know, so uh, maybe that could point to this kind of idea of, you know, cultural standard, you know, the, the models of, of high culture and uh, genius and, and, you know, coming down to, to the ground with, you know, the basics of just progressing through uh, your work and uh, engaging with people and things like that. One of the so, things that stood out to me about the story was the narrative style. How did you make that decision? What went into the way that you approached it? 
So do you mean, uh, for example, describing the character? And, it, it has kind of a, you know, an omniscient kind of floating above feel that I think right. helps with that contrast that you've been describing. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I sort of, I think, gravitate toward, I gravitated toward third person in that sense because, you know, I really wanted to create this effect of trying to see you know, more of a person than a person could describe of themselves, perhaps, maybe from the outside, mm -hmm. kind of, yeah, perhaps in an objective sense. A lot of my writing comes from uh, working as a journalist in the art world. Uh, so I kind of have this, I'm, I think I'm, I'm sort of, I tend to think of things in terms of a relationship to objects, describing objects or describing an image in that sense which uh, comes through in the, uh, in the classroom scene where uh, the children are trying to paint, are trying to draw things and having ideas and trying to make connections between language and image. But the narrative style is an interesting question. Somehow, in, in, um, I almost kind of see a quick leap from journalism to, to short story writing in terms of my practice, um, which comes from this almost like cathartic way of seeing journalism as a kind of short story format way. And so, uh, so I'm trying in that sense, I like to practice uh, the short story form uh, in order to become a better nonfiction uh, writer in that sense. Um, so typically, I mean, of course, you know, first person is a wonderful also a nonfiction device, but uh, in this particular sense, I, I really wanted to look back. This is a kind of a remembering. So it's almost like I didn't want to place myself. I didn't want to uh, directly address the reader, but, um, but I wanted to, so, yeah, sort of have this be a kind of memory that is really also about um, the present. I, I wasn't facing. I wasn't facing eviction or anything. But I, I, I did move uh, twice in the last year. Uh, that could subconsciously have affected this story. <laughs> but um, yeah. Well, the the narrative style that you used really mm -hmm. creates that observational feel. So it is. Um, it reminded me a little bit about uh, the play Our Town. Are you familiar with that? I'm not so. Okay, it, it very much matches what you're describing, where you observe people and you get to interpret their lives from a distance rather than, like you said, with first person putting yourself in it. It's more observational. Exactly. Yes, yes. I didn't want to sort of assume that degree of um, tragic uh, circumstance, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, but I did want to explore it. So can you I, talk I was, a little bit more about your journalistic work? Yeah. So, I mean, I started um, in culture journalism in a digital section of a newspaper while I was still in high school in, in, in New Bedford area. And then I went on after university to into alternative forms of journalism, cooperative media uh, in Canada. And I was always uh, concerned with, uh, you know, uh, healthy subjects, for example, not over victimizing, you know, narratives of oppression uh, that uh, 
through our society, but trying to show empowered at the same time, you know, really reporting about, uh, you know, difficult subjects, you know, in terms of migration and uh, land defense and environmental uh, journalism in that sense. Or, so, so that kind of uh, was why I think I ended up doing more cultural journalism because what I found was that a lot of artists are, are from these uh, incredible backgrounds of untold stories that really fit into the grander narratives that sort of dominate the news cycle in terms of war and uh, economic struggle and these sort of things. So I was kind of looking to connect the dots while making for interesting reads. And um, I continued to do that in uh, New York City for a number of years, um, working mainly in the, the dance, uh, actually, field. I was uh, reviewing two to three dance productions a week um, and doing other forms of cultural journalism. Um, and when I moved to Istanbul, I decided to focus more on the, the art world, world proper, which uh, sort of ended up becoming successful on a local scale. I, I have ended up doing editorial work for every museum and number of galleries and, um, and uh, written for the you know, leading art review publications around the world. And um, I, I, always, I, I always love when the ideas and the practices of writing about art uh, make themselves known in terms of their relationship to literature, because so much of um, writing about art is uh, rooted in, in literary work. And um, so, uh, so that's been so uh, fascinating for me. And um, I've come to a point where I'm trying to do more uh, literary reviewing and um, other kinds of reportage. I, I tend to, uh, I try to find unique, unique approaches and in, in the search for my voice within this uh, incredibly challenging field. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> Can you give us an example of a project that you've worked on? that really stands out in your mind as achieving your goals? Um, I mean, something that comes to mind is I did a profile of a Kurdish painter named Zehra Doan, who was uh, exiled to London after she was imprisoned for painting the scene of uh, essentially a war crime where the Turkish military destroyed a, a, a town, and she painted the town. The painting was seen as evidence, I, I suppose, as, uh, and, and she was criminalized and, and thrown into jail. And her story uh, from that point is just increasingly interesting and compelling. Uh, on the event of her first solo show in, in her home country of Turkey, I, I was interviewing her and producing this piece about how she survived prison and in prison learned more Kurdish with her fellow uh, Kurdish uh, prisoners and produced a body of work while imprisoned, um, which was incredibly moving. And at the same time, she was, when I interviewed her, and still today, of course, she's a young woman who, for, uh, 
is really rising to um, types of challenges and types of realities in this world that are uh, unfathomable perhaps to me and that when someone decides to continue to respond to that with beauty and self personal self-expression it's it's so inspiring and and uh, and lovely to to have the opportunity to be in dialogue with with that kind of story and, and try to understand um, that perspective or that uh, the ways in which she is connecting to everyone is trying to connect to people you know by telling uh, those stories. <clears throat> yeah, as you're saying that, I'm thinking about what you said earlier about not focusing on the victimization, but really looking at the humanity. And I can hear that in what you're saying, that you're right. admiring the way that she is doing, moving forward and creating things and still sharing exactly. her voice and perspective. Exactly. Exactly. That. You mentioned yes. also doing um, literary reviewing. Can you talk some about that? Yeah, um, I, I frequently review um, novels and nonfiction works. And, uh, uh, for example, uh, with a magazine called World Literature Today or World or Words Without Borders or, um, you know, a, n- a number of outlets, um, I, uh, I reviewed a very interesting book last year called The Undercurrents by... Uh, an art writer, art writer named Kirsty Bell, uh, based in Berlin, and um, that was very fascinating uh, because of the way in which um, the first person writing was able to unravel this tangled web of Berlin's history, tied to its cultural heritage, and and in a way that was uh, excitingly contemporary. And um, at the and spoke to these themes that are very uh, alive in contemporary art, where uh, it's not about what what is necessarily visible, but what about what makes itself known through experience, for example, or or through being in a particular place and having a connection with uh, something that is personal. And I think that's like a sort of lovely way that you know any art making tries to come to a place in which, outside of the increased commodification of objects and images, how are these ways in which we communicate actually moving us and actually, you know, connecting us and inspiring us to, to you know, whether it's an ecology or whether it's our sense of history or whether it's our um, experience, health, family, all these, you know, any theme you want. But uh, that, so I liked uh, that doing that book. I mean, I recently reviewed uh, Nights of Plague by Orhan Pamuk, uh, in which I really got to discuss the adaptation of history and contemporary fiction in a way that I found I really grasped. That was exciting um, to 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 write that about uh, his latest 700-page historical epic. (laughs) (laughs) Do you find yourself doing research while you're working on the reviews or doing research perhaps after? Of course, yes, yes. Research is so essential 
to uh, engaging with material, I, I think, with any material uh, in, in this field. Uh, of course, um, there's always a constant, for example, constant research of words, constant research of references, and, and supplementary material. Yeah, and I, I of course, I, I mean, seek and in search of, uh, you know, all kinds of uh, sources, whether it's academic or, uh, you know, any kind of uh, artistic work or that kind of uh, research is necessary. Speaking with people, friends, and readers, and such. It sounds fascinating. You must learn a lot of new things. That's why I was wondering if you did additional research even after you finished the project. Of course, I think because uh, so much of what motivates us is this kind of threads of continuity, you know, the, and and always in sort of pursuit of of something that uh, you know we feel like we're getting towards. We're kind of more able to express with greater clarity or, or uh, yeah, uh, yeah, some kind of firmer grasp or something. Yeah, so I mean, everything becomes, in that sense, material becomes sort of the next sort of stitch or knot on a, you know, a line of inquiry that I think. Yeah. What kind of project are you working on now? Uh, a number of projects that I'm doing a I'm doing a, a piece for a journal called Public uh, in Canada, the, and they're an art journal. And uh, the, the piece is a profile on an uh, artist named Iz Oztat, who uh, has created a fictional archive out of an alter ego uh, who uh, lived a century ago. And she, although she lives in the contemporary art world and she's an installation artist, she has essentially created a literary narrative in the form of an autobiography, which is very much in the vein of Virginia Woolf's Orlando and Gertrude Stein's autobiography of Alice B. Toklas. And, Wonderful. Um, <clears throat> yeah, so uh, I'm finding whenever uh, an artist approaches literary history and, and writing, but not necessarily with as much words, for example, or in the same uh, form in terms of writing as, as a novelist would, or a write, you know, writer would, I would, <clears throat> or however we can say, I mean, as someone who deals mainly in images and mainly in you know, spatial uh, expressions, for example, I find that that's always so captivating to me because I, I come from, you know, a sort of background that is really uh, remote from uh, art world type of thinking. I'm, I'm sort of coming from a very literary middle class. It's, a, it's either books or music, you know what I mean? Whatever you can get at this store you know, around the corner, you know what I mean? This idea of, um, you know, unfortunately, I shouldn't maybe say it so generally, but uh, really as an adult, I've come to so my work, uh, fortunately enough to, to appreciate different takes on uh, historiography on how we're creating history and heritage and culture and um, so th that artist in particular um, who I've known and uh, what, what, uh, um, became the subject of this re recent article uh, 
yeah, for example, uh, <clears throat> I mean, I'm, I'm drafting novels as well these days, but I mean, uh, historical fiction uh, and, um, yeah, and I'm trying to sell them to literary agents and, you know, going through the, <laughs> through the process, <laughs> through the, joy, the great joys of, <laughs> yeah, but in any case, I'm uh, familiar. Oh, no. <laughs> If our listeners would like to stay in touch with you and follow you in your work, where can they find you online? Yes, I mean, they can uh, find me. I have an Instagram, I, uh, Twitter. My name is Matt A. Hansen. I'm in a, in a few different publications. Uh, I, I suppose I'm reachable. Uh, <laughs> <perhaps>. <laughs> All right, well, we'll put that information in the show notes. Thanks so much for spending yeah. time with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to our talented poets and authors. Until next time, this has been Washington Square On Air. Where we showcase selections from Lansing Community College's literary journal, The Washington Square Review, a publication featuring writers in the Great Lakes State, across the nation, and around the world. To find out more about the Washington Square Review, visit lcc.edu slash WSR. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed sharing. Featuring the staff, faculty, students, and others that helped to make Lansing's Premier College what it is today. You're listening to LCC Connect. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Lansing Community College is hosting College Night on Thursday, October 19th. Representatives from more than 50 colleges and universities will be at LCC's downtown campus to answer questions about college admissions, programs, scholarships, and more. This provides an opportunity for high school students exploring their options for the future, adults looking to pursue a new career, and current college students looking to transfer. College night is free and open to the public. Thursday, October 19th. Learn more and register to attend at lcc.edu slash college night. I'm William Shatner. I've been around a long time, but I'm truly humbled when I see the real battles our brave, paralyzed veterans have faced defending our freedom and when they come home. I had just come home from serving over in Germany. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. I broke my neck. It left me paralyzed for the rest of my life. I was on a routine patrol and uh, we were in the desert of Kuwait and the vehicle flipped and landed on top of me, which uh, left me paralyzed from the waist down. Okay, folks, this, this, this is heroism. That's why I'm proud to support Paralyzed Veterans of America because they've kept their promise to never leave a fallen soldier behind. A roof over the heads, accessible homes, cars, jobs, benefits. PVA has brought me back to life. Show them their sacrifice hasn't been in vain. Go to pva.org to learn how you can make a difference. Lansing Community College Performing Arts features several events and presentations throughout the year. Find more information by visiting lcc.edu slash showinfo. Lansing Community College welcomes transfer students. 
Transfer students may apply prior credits toward their LCC degree, certificate, or transfer program. Learn more at lcc.edu slash youbelong. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to Community Convos, a podcast and radio program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in Lansing and around mid-Michigan. It's Dedelian back on the combo once again, and with me in the studio today is Joe Garcia. He is the CEO of Crystal Ray Community Center. Welcome to the show, Joe. Thanks for having me this morning. You know, you were actually were on an episode of Shining Stars, and you came in, talked a little bit about Crystal Ray. Even when we talked the first time around, it was it was pretty amazing hearing what Crystal Ray does. But I actually had the chance to tour the facility, and I was astounded by it. Everything that you have there, including the medical center, could you could you go? Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the five k run walk, of course, but could you tell me a little bit more, or like let folks know that aren't familiar with Crystal Ray, what exactly it is, and what you do here in our community? I would gladly share about Crystal Ray um, and what we do in the community and our impact. In general, we're a safety net organization, so we're here to work with folks wherever they're at uh, in their life. Uh, we provide medical care counseling services specifically to substance use disorder, but we're also uh, an avenue for for food and food insecurity. So we have a very large food pantry operation, mm-hmm. community kitchen, uh, clothing closet, as well as a personal needs uh, pantry. The so what behind that is that when someone comes, for instance, for medical care, mm. they can grab a meal before or after, uh, bring groceries home. If they need some clothing items, you know, just basic Basic needs, basic needs right. are met. Yeah. And for the poor and the vulnerable, transportation is a big issue. So when you can uh, make uh, checks on needed items in one single location, it's a great advantage. Very good. And it was that medical center where I didn't realize it was as uh, expansive. It just seemed to have a lot of those needs that we're talking about. It was more than I expected. Well, absolutely. It's not it's not the clinic environment or what people have in their mind of a, of a you know like a mobile clinic or things of that nature. It's mm-hmm. a primary care facility. We have uh, you know four physicians that work there. People who come for an appointment there see the same provider. High quality of care. Thirty minute appointments. Um, our physicians uh, understand the needs of the population that we're serving there, and they kind of serve as a case manager as well. So there's there's great value in that uh, in that model, in that type of care, and we're very proud to be able to to help it at that level. Well, we're very grateful to have you here in our community. All right, as a nonprofit, you have to get out there and raise those funds and help to make this all happen. So coming up, you've got the Cristo Rey 11th Annual Run Walk, I'm assuming. Sure. Forgiving, it's a 5K, and uh, when exactly is this happening? That's happening Saturday, the 21st of October, Okay. 9 a.m. 9 a.m., and where's this gonna get started? It's gonna get started right at the entry of uh, Potter Park Zoo. So we all know where Potter Park is located, If you're from Lansing, yes. If you're from Lansing, there you go. Um, Great parking there. It's just a couple uh, couple hundred feet from the parking lot there. We'll have all kinds of 
of notice to where one can uh, travel to. But it's an excellent course right on Lansing's River River Trail. And, you know, so uh, it's going to be a beautiful thing to do on a Saturday morning, helping the community, helping our own personal health. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we're going to get something good out of it. Right, right, right. Uh, okay, so it's a walk, run. Uh, what about wheelchair? You know, is that, is that you know, a possibility? Walk, run, and roll as far as all that goes. Because you're going along the river trail. Yeah, from what the, I the yeah. river trail is not going to have any barriers for individuals with disabilities. So absolutely. And yeah, the, for those who haven't traveled on the river trail lately, it's, it's a beautiful place to spend, uh, you know, half an hour on. You know, so it, uh, it would be wonderful. All right. Good. Are we going to expect to see you out there running too? Um, I'm, I am a runner, oh, okay. but, um, I have this very fun role. I take a bicycle. I'm on the front of the line there and I am clearing the path for the lead runners. All so right. you'll see me there. You'll see me on a bike and I, you know, that's the best job. Very good. Very yeah. good. Uh, as far as the proceeds from all this, this, this of course goes, goes to benefit Crystal Ray, right? Absolutely. You know, we uh, at Crystal Ray and as well as all the nonprofits in our community, you know, we have to stand ready mm-hmm. to be able to help com- the community in any way possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the funds that we generate through the, an event like this just helps us be more prepared. You know, very quickly here, one of uh, a, a high need is is access to, to food items. Mm-hmm. You know, right now in uh, Cristo Ray's 55-year history, our food bank operation is... We're seeing more families than we ever have in our existence. Mm. So the need to keep up with uh, um, which, which what I will call the high-quality food items is very essential and, quite honestly, more expensive than we would like it to be. Mm. But we need to stand ready to be able to help in that area. And this is the 11th year you've done this, so I'm sure that you've got some uh, runners that come back each and every year. Uh, those are generally the ones that are the most competitive. Uh, is there a chance to win medals, anything like that? Absolutely. There's an opportunity to to win medals, of course, for the competitive folks. Um, we do the uh, the electronic timing so mm. people can get there. You know, if they're after their personal best timing or, you know, beat last year, you sure. know, that, that data is available for them. Many are getting prepared to run their late fall marathons, and this is one of those last opportunities to, uh, you know, to get some of those uh, running efforts before those events. So for any runner, for whatever reason, please come out there. But also just remember that there is such an added bonus here. You're out there taking care of your health, enjoying Mm -hmm. the the wonderful fall day, but you're also helping. You're helping people. Great cause. Yes, definitely. Uh, so somebody wants to get involved, be a part of it. What do they do? How do they get involved? Very simple. All kinds of ways to connect, you know, the, the come to our website, Cristo Ray Community Center dot org. Run for giving, you know, keyword search, run for giving in Google. You're going to find it there. Um, call Cristo Ray's main phone number, 517-372-4700. We'll make the connections for everyone there. Okay. What about those that suffer from, uh, like me, pro- chronic procrastination? Uh, could, could you do it the day of the event? Or Absolutely. Not? Show yeah. up. Okay. Show up and we'll, we'll, um, we'll take care of you a day of. All right. And I assume you got a limited amount of uh, T-shirts available. Do you still got those going on as as we speak at this time? Well, there you go. Well, we plan ahead. So we do we do order extra and certainly we will not uh, leave anyone behind who wants a shirt. So even if we run out, 
I'll get one to you. Yeah, all right, there you go. Joe Garcia, again, CEO of the uh, Cristo Rey Community Center. Was there anything that we didn't hit on that you wanted to make sure we talked about? You know, I, I, I think we're good. I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity to get the word out. I want to remind folks that, oh boy, there is so much joy in uh, giving Mm-hmm. as well as there is in receiving. Sometimes so this is a quite great a opportunity. More. Sometimes quite a bit more. I'll even give you that. Absolutely. Uh, Joe Garcia, appreciate you coming in and talking to us about it. Good luck with the event. Again, it's happening Saturday, October 21st. Uh, you want to get the details, uh, do a quick search on Cristo Rey and see if you can find it. It shouldn't be too hard at all. I found it real easy. Uh, and then you go to their news and events page and they'll get all the details right there. Yeah, thank you very much. You've been listening to Community Combos, a program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in our community. To listen to this episode on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Community Combos, email us lcc-connect at lcc.edu. And thanks for joining the combo. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. The Cesar Chavez Learning Center's Access Program at Lansing Community College creates a community on campus for underrepresented students, providing them with a support network and multiple layers of academic, social, and professional experiences. Access also incorporates workshops and resources that assist in educational and career advancement. To find out more about Access, visit lcc.edu and search Access Program. Twenty-three million small businesses are open for business in the United States, providing more than half of all American jobs. What helps these small businesses thrive? A location where people need its services. The availability of good transportation. A well-trained labor force and a healthy infrastructure. An attractive streetscape and comfort and safety for pedestrians. Good planning connects small businesses to the customers they need, fostering the competition that helps healthy businesses grow. Whether you own a small business, work at a small business, or bought from a small business, and that's just about all of us, make the connection. Learn more at planning.org. That's planning.org. A message from this station and the American Planning Association. Lansing Community College is hosting College Night on Thursday, October 19th. Representatives from more than 50 colleges and universities will be at LCC's downtown campus to answer questions about college admissions, programs, scholarships, and more. This provides an opportunity for high school students exploring their options for the future, adults looking to pursue a new career, and current college students looking to transfer. College Night is free and open to the public. 
Thursday, October 19th. Learn more and register to attend at lcc.edu slash college night. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Hello, friends, and welcome to Coach Cuts Corner. Streaming bright from Michigan's capital city, this podcast is dedicated to helping you better understand the who, the what, and the why of mental performance, personal growth, and Lansing Stars baseball. Coach Cuts Corner, brought to you by iWatch. In collaboration with Lansing Community College. And now here's your host, Stephen Cutter. Welcome back to Coach Cuts Corner. Today I'm joined in studio by Stars Baseball Assistant Coach Elijah Boyer and special guest Stars Baseball player and the kid known as the Coach's Kid, Alec Cutter. Today we'll be covering Alec's journey and what it's like playing college baseball with your dad on the front step of the dugout. That's definitely a little bit uncommon. I know at the youth level, having parents coaching is is pretty common. You see it a lot. You, you'll even see it at the travel levels as well. And then as you get to the high school level, it's it's usually not that predominant. And then the college level is, is less. So we'll, we'll definitely go through some of that stuff. How are you doing today, Elijah? Locked in. I love that. <laughs> love that. Al, you doing all right? Great. All right. You ever done a podcast before? Nope. This is the first, first one. First time. All right. So we'll, I'll hit you with a question and see how you go. What's it like being a coach's kid? Um, Answer that carefully now. It's, it's definitely <laughs> different. Uh, I think that a lot of people don't get the opportunity to play for their, their dad at 21 years old, so it's definitely a little uncommon for sure. Okay. And do you get special treatment? Uh, no, not at all. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think a lot of people, that's like the stigma at well, a young you, age. You play shortstop and bat in the three hole, right? No, not usually. <laughs> but um, Yeah, that's the stigma for sure at a young age, but it's a little different um, when you're a little older. So. Okay, what's, what's, your, um, what's your baseball journey been like? Um, it's, been, it's been a lot of ups and downs. Um, I spent some time out in New York, so I got away from home, and that was definitely a lot different. But you've basically been my coach for my whole life, so I think that was the only year of my entire life that you haven't coached me besides my first year at T-ball. So. Yet, yet, of yet. course. Yeah. But uh, you started playing at a young age. You also played other sports, correct? Yep, I played football and I played basketball in middle school as well, but then I didn't play in high school. So How come? Uh, I wanted to focus on baseball and basketball was kind of right in that separation season for baseball, that winter time where you, you train and you get better. And so that's what I that's what I took my time for instead of playing basketball. That sounds like a very politically correct answer, but was it just because you weren't very good at basketball? Um, yeah, that could have played into it too. I wasn't great, but I love basketball. I got cut my junior year, but I wouldn't have stopped playing if it weren't for that. Worked out for the best though, because like you said, right. that was where I started making those big gains. Was in that off season for baseball. Was it pretty challenging when you got cut? Like, oh yeah, totally unexpected on your end. At oh least? yeah, I I. Did, Went to a pretty big school in Shawnee. Uh, the name of it was Shawnee Mission West in Overland Park, Kansas. And um, almost every guy that was on that JV and varsity squad, which is what I was trying out for my junior year, almost every one of those guys, the starters, went on to play college basketball. They were all above like six foot tall, pretty much. <laughs> so, and uh, for the listeners who don't know, I'm five six, so 
pretty pretty tall guy with your shoes on right with the shoes on for sure <laughs> so you know i remember coaching you at a at a pretty young age and and it wasn't just in baseball it was in multiple sports and you know i i think as i look at you sitting across you know in the studio right now i think if it what if it hadn't been for you i'm not sure that i would have got into coaching in general i was in the business world and you know i was pretty happy doing doing that kind of stuff but i started coaching alec when he was really little at the you know t-ball or little league you know tiny level and and um it was through that that i i really found my passion for coaching and at first i was trying to figure it out is is it just because alex on the team is is that one you know why i like it so much but then i was able to start coaching other teams that that alec wasn't on and it really didn't change you know and so if it wouldn't have been for for him coming along i'm i'm not sure that i would be sitting here right now so i think it's pretty cool that you're in the studio i also think it's it's really unique because in the situation that you're in, you're you're sometimes you're in a tough spot because you, you'll have probably have teammates throughout the years that maybe don't want to tell you something because they're afraid that it's going to get back to you know the coaching staff, and then you have other other people that think that you get special treatment, and then you have families and parents. You know, we've lost friends through the years because of coaching. You know, it's 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 pretty crazy. Um, so you started really young and then you didn't necessarily transition to just baseball, um, until college, you know, mm -hmm. you were, you played football. You want to talk about that at all? Um, yeah, football was definitely my second favorite sport. Um, I probably, you started playing that Well, I, th I think we got you in that when you were about yeah, five mom, mom or so. Mom made me play soccer when I was three because that was the first sport I ever played. <laughs> and then when I turned four, that's when they would allow me to play football. Sort of. I think and you had to be five, but we got you in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that that didn't go well. I remember uh, being scared to death of absolutely everything. I uh -huh. peed myself at yeah. practice yeah. a couple times. I it was. I remember. Yeah. yeah, mom was not very happy with that. So, <laughs> yeah, but so you, you played football f from a really young age, but then you you didn't necessarily love it at least starting out for obvious reasons you were you were very little and that's a still a contact sport it wasn't like it was flag football or mm -hmm. anything but then you kept playing right yeah yeah I think the first year I really enjoyed football was actually the year that you coached me it would have been dynamites and I got to play quarterback for the first time course, in my life right and shortstop three hole yeah, quarterback exactly. <laughs> yep yep yeah, that was definitely like a memorable year because I still remember scoring my first touchdown and being like, oh, this is kind of fun because I had never gotten the ball before when I was playing football because I was always a lineman or a tight end or something that would just block. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, you went to high school and, and we had moved at that point and you weren't sure if you were going to play and then kind of what happened there? Um, I did not want to go to the first practice. I didn't know anybody besides Charlie. And, Which was your freshman year. Right? Yeah, that was my freshman year. And, um, yeah, I didn't know anybody. I was scared, and I basically said that I was going to just focus on baseball and I was going to not play football, and you made me go to the first practice. And uh, I definitely don't regret that at all. So I had a good four years of football, or three and a half pretty much, I guess. Why three and a half? I broke my collarbone in the homecoming game. Uh, senior year so okay. what was that like it was it was hard for sure uh, it took away a lot of time from basically anything I remember it's it's still like a bad dream sleeping in that recliner it was it was terrible it was I was in a lot of pain and I couldn't sleep and 
it, it was a long recovery for sure. Not being able to swing the bat or anything definitely sucked because I was going into my senior year for baseball as well, and I don't think I got to pick up a bat until January maybe, something like that, I think December, January, somewhere around there. So that was really hard for me. Yeah. What's what's a typical day in the life of Alec Cutter look, look like right now as a college athlete? Well, over the summertime, it was a little different, but now I've really transitioned well into waking up earlier in the morning. So I don't have any days out of the week where I'm getting up later than 8.30, which has really been a big adjustment for me because I, I like to sleep, and I had a lot of days where I was sleeping in until 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, and I've made that adjustment, which I think the morning lifts and just the morning stuff in general has really helped me make that adjustment, and I feel like I have a lot more time to get stuff done throughout the day. But um, I do a lot of my my homework and stuff now in the mornings as well. I've I've heard from other people that stuff works well, so I've been trying to on the mornings. Like this morning, I had time to do a little bit of homework before study table, and it's just it's worked out a lot better for me doing homework earlier in the morning, like before we go to study table or whatnot, because then I'm not up at eleven o'clock at night trying to get stuff submitted. So you had study table already today and then and then you're in our podcast studios right now but then what happens after this i uh, go straight to practice um i go usually pretty early and try to get some stuff done before practice as well and then obviously we'll have the couple hours of practice and then tonight we'll have today's an inner squad day yeah inner squad so. and then after practice what what what's it look like after practice for you uh, i have leadership council after practice so i basically go what's that it's it's a group of guys that we meet before leadership every week and we just talk about the stuff going on within the team, whether that's, you know, if we have issues, we'll talk about issues, we'll talk about the good things, we'll talk about the bad things, like all of it pretty much, and it just kind of depends on the week, you know, whatever's going on. So I have that before leadership, and then I go straight to leadership after that. So Then leadership is a couple hours? A couple hours long, and it's, yeah, just... Depends on the week with that as well. We usually have a presentation. We'll talk about some stuff. Sometimes it's some crazy stuff. <laughs> you just really never know what you're going to get when you walk into that room. So That's that's good. That's uncommon. Yep. So why don't you tell Coach Boyer and our listeners what a typical day looks like for me from your eyes? Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot more than people, I think, realize because I get to see firsthand that you're you're gone every morning before I'm in the house and you're you're up at 12 o'clock, one in the morning, whatever, doing doing your work. And it's just I don't think people realize how much goes on behind the scenes in your life and how much you put into this program and what you do. It's it's extremely impressive that you go on the amount of sleep that you get and you're still up before me every morning taking the girls to school or whatnot. It's just right. it's different for sure. Hardy Kate would be upset at the amount of sleep you get. Yeah. She's usually upset anytime I pop a Coke open or anything else. So yeah. That's I get the it. team nutritionist yeah. for people who yeah. don't know Who's, RD Kate. Yeah. Kate's incredible. Um, your first year, so high school ended pretty well for you. You had some successful teams that you were on. Uh, lo and behold, I end up coaching you at the high school level too because your your high school coach had gotten fired and or dismissed or what whatever happened there and then i come in and for three seasons i'm your baseball coach there obviously one of those seasons was the COVID year so that was a weird you know short little season Mm -hmm. and then um 
you know, you, you commit to a junior college in New York and you go out there and you go away from, for a while, you, you deal with some injuries, you deal with some different stuff out there. Um, I, I was hired to, as a LCC baseball coach at, I think before you even left, I think somewhere mm-hmm. in there. Yeah. Um, but there was never really that much conversation. I don't remember about you coming to Lansing that first year. Was there? No, not until later in the year, like in the spring after I, I had gone through my COVID stuff where I missed two weeks. And then shortly after that, I got hit in the head with a ball during practice and I missed about four weeks with a concussion. And I was, I was pretty upset and I was right. ready to come home for sure. So then you came to Lansing and we said, you're, you're so good. You're going to spend a year redshirted, right? Yeah. So, so, so you were, a, you were a part of the 50 and 12 team from last season and um, you got to do everything, including travel and practice, and you know you just didn't get to play in the games. Mm-hmm. Um, what was what was that experience like? It was like nothing I have ever done in my life because I've never been why on a team where I can't contribute on the field. But there's there's so many different ways that the red shirts contributed to that team last year, and it was just a different perspective for me. How how would the red shirts? Uh, in practice and stuff, there was red shirts that would throw BP and do stuff like that. And in the games, we would take, you know, we'd take the stats down, we'd do the game changer, we'd video all the games. I mean, there was just a lot of things that went on behind the scenes that the red shirts had to take care of for the guys who were on the field. What was it like being at the College World Series? Because you were not able to be in the dugout at that point. So what was that like? Uh, it did suck a little bit having to be in the stands. I didn't it was hard to feel like a part of the team when you're in the stands with all the rest of the parents and stuff. And, uh, we actually ended up in the booth because it was so hot down there and the iPads would overheat when we were sitting in the stands. So we had to go up into the booth so that we could video and do game changer and stuff. So it it was hard for sure for me to do that. I, I remember between games getting to go down and throw like play catch on the field or something. That was like the highlight of it. Cause we got to step <laughs> on the field. So I think you told me you had a big question for Coach Boyer. I did. Yeah, that's what you said. What do you What do you got for Coach B? What do you got? <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think he was telling me about how he was he was hearing that uh, you've been a little soft on the team since getting here. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that right. sounds pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, I I think that's the exact opposite of the truth. To be honest, but. do you do you feel it's different for you? Because you you work with all of our players, not just our hitters. Obviously, all of our coaches are heavily involved in development, whether it's physically, mentally, or or anywhere in between. Do you feel it's different when you're working with with the coach's kid? That do you think differently about it? No, I don't. I at the end of the day, I think you know, I like I have to draw that same line that mm-hmm. you do, and be like mm-hmm. he's. He's just another player. Right. And I, I guess I never really felt like a big difference in that way. Um, but, I mean, it's been it's been nice to see that he's one of the guys pulling on the rope, you know, for obvious reasons. It, He's one of the guys that's doing things the right way every day, and it's just going to keep adding on to the next day and the next day and yeah. getting better. Um, a lot of the one-on-one swing sessions that we're doing, um, starting to see changes in his swing, you know, coachable players, that tends to be the case. So yeah. it's just been like having a, having a good player. I don't, yeah, yeah. I don't really see a difference for sure. 
that's that's pretty cool do you feel like in in general when when we're working with players whether it's a coach's son or anybody else that when you're in really good environments you have a lot of people that are just really bought into whatever whatever you're saying i mean i'm sure you know coming from driveline you experience that too because that's a yeah. top facility in the in the country and people don't go there typically just to yeah. go there and you know they're yeah. going there because they have a bigger vision and or somebody else has a bigger vision for them and they need to get better and they kind of pay attention when you're talking you know oh, yeah. but if, if you go and you coach um you know maybe at some at the high school level you're not going to get that from the from a lot of your players you will get it but you're not going to get it from you know the majority like you will get in really good college programs but you know there's there are some really good high school programs oh, yeah. that get it too but you know it's it's just a little bit different no that that is one huge thing that brought me here was when the lansing guys were at driveline for i think there was six or seven Probably, of them that yeah. came the summer i was interning and just the way they worked every day, the way that they handled themselves, they were teaching each other, which was the coolest thing. Um, yes. And I remember coming down here and it, for the most part, I'd say at least 80% of the hitters, I have that same feeling as if they came to a facility ready to learn, committed to getting better. So um, maybe that's why I didn't feel different coaching you is because there are a lot of guys just like you, like everybody was mm -hmm. the same for the most part. Like yeah. willing to learn and get after it. Yeah. What are so? What are some of your goals for moving forward? Because this is the last year of junior college baseball, and you've got you're going to need to make some decisions and and move forward. What have you put much thought into that? Uh, I try to stay pretty present with what I'm doing, but I definitely have thought about it a little bit, especially after uh, this weekend at the Puma and getting to see all those coaches and everything there. It's definitely made me think about it a little bit, but um. I really want to focus on my schooling and graduate here and get my 60 credits so that I can get my degree. And um, I'm really just focused on if I'm going to go somewhere else, I want to make sure that I, I find some place that's a good fit for me. I don't I don't want to be in a situation where I don't I don't enjoy baseball like what I do here. So, yeah. And that and that good fit. What's that? What's that really mean to you by, by just enjoying the game? Uh, having a a good winning program is very important obviously but I think the development side of it and having a growth mindset and a, a coaching staff that's behind me would be extremely important right yeah good stuff well until next time thank you to our listeners and Elijah and Alec for joining me today in the WLNZ studios go stars Coach Cuts Corner is recorded live in the WLNZ studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by Dedalian Lowry. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow us on all the platforms of social media. You can find more about our program at lccstars.com. And donations to our baseball program can be made at the same site. See you next time. This has been a presentation of LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, 
and vision of Lansing Community College. All shows featured on LCC Connect are recorded at the WLNZ studio located on LCC's downtown campus. Each program is podcast based and can be heard anytime at lccconnect.org. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on one of our shows, connect with us by emailing lcc-connect at lcc.edu.